Is a utopian society possible? Or does the potential cynicism behind the spelling of that word rest on a deeper truth, one that the totalitarian societies of the 20th century learned the hard way? On a related note, if you show up to heaven with the wrong picture of what heaven is, how long do they let you live that fantasy out for? And how long would you want to? From the way comparing the view of our balcony with that of our neighbors can ruin a vacation to the specter of eugenics and genocide, there are a lot of internal and external problems the human race faces. Could we engineer something that would solve those for us? And if so, would that be a state or a state of mind or something else? Is heaven on earth a little too high to set our sights? We're going to take a look into it tonight. Stay tuned. Welcome back to uh, Swedenborgian Life. I hope you didn't panic when you saw our new intro style thing. And what was that symbol at the end? Was there some kind of nefarious Illuminati symbol? Go to Swedenborg.com. Okay, it's the logo, the Swedenborg Foundation logo, which this is the short version of the logo that we have here. By the way, I'm Curtis Childs. I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation, and we are going today to look at how to create heaven on earth. And if you want to chime into that conversation... You can. Just get your questions and your comments in. So heaven on earth sounds like a great thing. Why wouldn't we want to do it? So let's get to it as quickly as possible. In the beginning, let's look at uh, how people have tried to go about this in the past. Because you'd think, heaven on earth oh yeah that sounds great why don't we just do it and there have been people who have tried to do that to create some kind of ideal society across history and we probably the the most famous tract of those or or system of those falls under the word utopia which i think you've heard before let's learn a little bit more about that and sort of where uh where it comes from and what it is some people think of heaven as a utopia um, utopia originally meant nowhere or no place. That's U-T-O-P-I-A. Um, and it's a little bit of a play on words because there's also um, E-U-T-O-P-I-A, utopia. And that means a good place. So there's, there's a bit of um, perhaps a cynical or questioning um, attitude behind the use of the word itself. Um, so the idea of, of heaven on earth, you can see, could generate some skepticism just by calling it your utopia or referring to a utopia. Um, but the idea of creating a kind of really good society or maybe a perfect society or something approaching an ideal society is very old. Um, you find it in the history of philosophy as well as in the history of theology. In philosophy in particular, it, you can trace it back to Plato, who's the first systematic um, political philosopher in Western philosophy, um, although not, not the only one, but the first systematic one. And he, in his dialogue called The Republic, talks about this ideal or close to ideal kind of perfect society. So Plato's sitting around, looks at the world, the world is imperfect. I know I can create a society, a heaven on earth, although he wasn't using that term. 
just so we don't have to go through the whole story now, in brief, in Plato's Republic, he imagines a society with three classes in it. You can see them to my this side. And there's the workers sort of at the bottom who get all the nitty-gritties done for the civilization. Each of these classes had a particular virtue they excelled in. The workers had temperance. They didn't need too much. They weren't too crazy. They just did what needed to be done. The warriors were courageous. They did what you would think warriors do. They protect, they attack if need be. They're the sort of the might of the society. And then there were the guardians uh, who rule everything. They happen to be philosophers, like the guy writing it, surprise. And they were wise, and they decided what we would do. They governed and ruled. So that's the essence of the Republic. But why, why did he write the Republic in the first place? Plato's society is intriguing on the one hand, because it seems like if we could only do this, if we could have, in a sense, rule by the experts, then we wouldn't have nearly the amount of problems that we currently have. So he's trying to eliminate problems. That isn't that the idea of heaven, is just picturing a world without problems. Some of the problems that in Plato was dealing with in his day, uh, you know, in, in Athenian society, you'll notice this list is not that different from what we're dealing with today. You had family favoritism in politics, political patronage, lusts for power, economic greed. You had warring groups taking each other over, civil war, and the need for securing protection and basic necessities. So he thought, I can design this society. That will that's going to organize people in such a way that it will take care of all this. However, there's a couple of hiccups which we're going to hear about. He's trying to meet all of those needs, and the way he does it is by educating a class of people, men and women, in a particular way, So and then giving them political power. Um, and the Republic today is still one of the most widely read philosophical books, or actually any kind of book or literature in uh, universities and colleges in the West. Because it's, it's intriguing that someone thinks through political action and structure, we can solve these problems. And on the other hand, it's repulsive because of the way that Plato tries to solve these problems. What is that way? What's the repulsive stuff? Again, in brief, you have a sense of eugenics in there, breeding people to fit uh, certain molds, getting rid of people who don't. The warrior class didn't have any property or privacy if you're going to force people to live that way. The guardian class had some deception going on. You had sort of the old guard tricking the young guard, and there wasn't always honesty there. But also you had censorship, essentially, from the guardian case. They said, we know what's best for society. We know what kind of art, music, literature there should be. Stuff like that doesn't work well, you know? So that that is a problem if you're designing any society and you're going to factor in heavy censorship. However, this is a good thing to look at. We wanted to start looking off at the Republic because it's it's a really, really good example, as, as is elaborated on here. I would say that captures in a kind of example or exemplar some of the problems that we've encountered in trying to um, come up with a really good system for having a good society, living a good life together as well as individually. And we've, we've seen that um, over the centuries in the West. And you've seen it from all sides of an issue. There have been people who thought 
the world has problems. I know how we're going to get rid of those problems. We are going to do tight theocratic control of the state. We're going to have a particular religious system or doctrine, and we are going to make everybody adhere strictly to that. That led to problems. And on the other side, you have you have groups that say we're going to abolish all kinds of spirituality, outlaw religion, and that's going to fix it. But neither quite worked. You know, in the 20th century, you had uh, the Soviet Union, and, and the, the sort of theme of that was centralized control of almost all aspects of society. And the thought behind that was... If we change your environment enough, just from top to bottom, and very rigorously, then we will change what's inside of you. That's, that's the theory anyway. They didn't have any posters that said, we will change what's inside of you, but that's the, that's the, the, we're going to control the external environment, and that's going to lead to something. Sort of on the other end of the spectrum, you had fascism, which said, agreed, the world is full of problems, but instead of saying we're going to control how those aspects of society are, we see that all those problems are caused by a particular group. And so that was the focus, and the thought there was... If we could only get rid of those people or um, completely dominate them or, you know, somehow um, change them or make them obey, then things would be better. But words like fascism don't really call up a nostalgic, uh, inspiring feeling in us, do they? So there's something has gone wrong. We, we have people who say, I want to create the ideal society. I want to make a heaven on earth, but there's been some spectacular failures and catastrophic failures there. So what, what, is there a way? Can you do it? And if so, what is that way? We're going to look at it from the Swedenborgian perspective here, see if there's anything that we can find. So to begin that, you know, maybe there's a different path here that hasn't been explored. And to begin that, we have to look a little bit about the difference between natural and spiritual. And that you, if you are dealing with something spiritual, there needs to be a spiritual solution to it. And if you're dealing with something natural, there needs to be a natural solution to it. And Swedenborg explains the, the nature of the separation between the spiritual and the physical in this video from Heaven and Hell 38. Anyone who does not know how the divine design is arranged in levels cannot grasp how the heavens are distinguished from each other or, for that matter, what the inner person and the outer person are in an individual. The only idea most people in this world have about inner and outer things is one of continuity, or of a coherence along a continuum from the finer to the coarser. Inner and outer things are not arranged in a continuum, though, but with definite boundaries. People who do not acquire a grasp of these levels have no way of knowing how the heavens are arranged, or the arrangement of our own deeper and more outward abilities, or the difference between the spiritual world and the natural world, or the difference between our spirit and our body. In case that seemed like a bit much, the essence of the statement is, you can't just go a certain direction in the physical world and get to the spiritual world. You can't fly a spaceship, and then finally, when you finally get out beyond the last galaxy, there it is, or you can't go deeper and deeper. You can't look more and more closely at something, and you get to the micro, micro scales, and then there's heaven. The two are distinct from each other, and not only the two worlds, but the two parts of us, the spirit and the body, have that same distinction. He describes this in True Christianity 793, 
The difference between people in the physical world and people in the spiritual world is that people in the spiritual world are clothed in a substantial body, whereas people in the physical world are clothed in a material body that has a substantial body inside it. In case that's confusing, spiritual world, substantial body, the essence of the person, you have a form, right? You're looking on the, the, the uh, left-hand side of your screen. There's a form still, even in the spirit. Spirits look like people. However, in the physical world, we still have that spiritual, substantial body. Our essence is a person within that. But then we have this material body that's out around it, and the, those two are linked. Does that make sense? Well, the goal is to have... While we're in this physical world, the goal is to have our inner substantial, what you could call the spirit, our spirit and our outer self or our natural self become the same, because they're not always the same. As we know, we can think and feel very differently than we act and want to appear. In his book, Last Judgment, number 56, Swedenborg gets at this a little more. He says that after death, we all lead the same kind of life we led in the world. This applies to the lives of people we are talking about here. They are just like the lives they have led in the world, with the sole difference that now things hidden in their hearts are uncovered. They are in the spirit, you see, where the deeper processes of their thought and intentions dwell. They kept these concealed in the world and covered them with an outward holiness. So the whole point of life on this planet, as described by Swedenborg, is that here we can act differently. You can think and feel one way, but yet act and talk a different way. Um, and that makes it so that you act, we have a chance to reform. Because if we were all just stream of consciousness, saying whatever came to us, acting on whatever impulses we had, you'd never change as a person because you just go with what you are. Here we have the chance to change, and it's freedom that allows us to do that. And because of that, we cannot be compelled to do things. We have to reform, change our inner self. If we're going to have a more heavenly inner self or spirit, we have to do that freely. And Swedenborg has this great treatise on it in Divine Providence 136, however, is too long. So we're just going to summarize it here. First, he says, nobody is reformed through threats or punishment because they compel. So you can't change somebody spiritually through threats and through punishment because that makes it so that... Um, that they, they lose their freedom. Also, what is outside us cannot control what is inside us. Right? So external compulsions, they can change your behavior, but they can't change what is deep within you. However, what is inside of us, it can control what is outside, right? I mean, that's pretty basic. You think and feel a certain way, you can use that to act on the body, change your behaviors, change your environment around you. However, the resisting of the inner part of us is such that whenever we feel like we're being compelled externally, we actually turn the other way. We can't be forced. And you see that pretty clearly in, in little kids, right? You say, can you go do this? No, I, I don't want to do that. Even if they actually do want to do it, they just don't want you to tell them to do it. And we all have that within us. Essentially, we cannot be forced to believe or love anything. We can be forced to do things or say things, but on a deeper level, we can't be forced to love something or believe anything. 
And our inner nature wants to stay in freedom. It loves its freedom. It wants to be able to send things freely into the world. So when something free feels like it's being control, controlled, it turns the other way, as we said, it also withdraws. It also g- pulls away from the thing compelling it. So any compulsion towards belief is harmful. He says it's especially harmful to try to compel people to worship God. So there you have an issue with these sort of theocratic societies who say, you have to be religious, you have to live a religious life. That actually damages the freedom, which is the way that we connect with God. Also, though, compulsory worship. There have been utopian kind of societies that have this forced, where you have to you have to worship a certain way. Swedenborg says that that actually shuts evil inside us. If we have negative tendencies, it locks them in because we have this false outer spiritual life, which causes us harm. But if we're free to go pursue our own spirituality, that actually, we get to see our evils get to be let out, but then they dissipate. That's the spiritual growth you get when you're coming at something because you're really liking it. You know, to close, in summary, the inner nature always resists external compulsion. So, if you're going to make a society where you want everybody to have a good mind and a good heart, forcing people to have those things isn't going to work. So are we all just, can, can the world not get any better? You know, because we've got, we've all got issues. We know other people that have issues, so how do issues get better? Swedenborg says that we actually, while we can't be compelled externally, we can and actually should compel ourselves. Divine Providence 145 This is a number about self-compulsion, which might seem like a contradiction to freedom, but it's not in Swedenborg's world. Self-compulsion is not inconsistent with rationality and freedom. Since we are human because of our inner thought, which is actually the human spirit, it follows that we are compelling ourselves when we force our outer thought process to pro- <laughs> force our outer thought processes to consent or to accept the pleasures of our inner desires, the benefits that arise from our caring. Inner also meaning higher, higher. So you're saying the the better part of you is forcing the the more um, antisocial part of you to be good. We can see that this is not inconsistent, but in accord with our rationality and freedom, since it is our rationality that starts this struggle and our freedom that pursues it. You know, we see that we want to change and then make the choice to change. Our essential freedom, together with our rationality, dwells in our inner self and comes into our outer self from there. So when the inner conquers, which happens when the inner self has brought the outer self into agreement and compliance, then we are given true freedom and true rationality by the Lord. Then, that is, the Lord brings us out of that hellish freedom that is really slavery and into the heavenly freedom that is truly inherently free. And Swedenborg makes the interesting point that when we're compelling ourselves, when we feel like, I don't, there's a part of me that doesn't want to do this, but I know this is good, so I'm going to do it, that we're actually more free in that moment than we ever are. Even though it doesn't feel like it, because it feels like you're grinding against something, to make a choice that runs counter to a desire is is the essence is an essence a part of the, a deep part of the essence of freedom and th- that kind of self compulsion that spiritual growth work we uh, we have this certain way we are we want to upgrade you know put positive tendencies in for negative that's how you change that inner substantial body we were talking about and it's through changing that spirit that we can start to change the world around us now we don't mean to say that the physical world doesn't need changing, that it's all about the internal world. 
obviously there's a lot that needs to change in the physical world, and you could never have a heaven on earth in, until that's changed. People's needs have to be met. They're, they have to have food, shelter, clothing, sort of the bottom of the Maslow pyramid. You know, that, that has to be there. However, the physical can only take us so far. You might think if there was no poverty, no hunger, then the world would be happy. But, but that isn't what people find. I mean, first of all, there's just a common sense example. that Think about, you know some people who have all their material needs met. Are they totally happy? Do no crimes happen in high-income neighborhoods? This does happen. So there's a, a dropping off point. Actually, studies find this. There was a study that was done um, <clears throat> where it said that high income improves evaluation of life, but not emotional well-being. And what this, you can read it for yourself, but what it says is that when you don't have enough to live, getting an increase in your income makes you a lot happier. Like if you go from below poverty to having enough, that makes you a lot happier. But if you already have enough and then you get a bunch more income, your happiness doesn't go up proportionally. It actually it actually eventually fades and has very little impact on you at all. So the phys- everybody needs to have their physical me- needs met and we need to be going out and trying to make sure nobody's hungry people have education, people have clean water, people have opportunities. However, once we've gotten there, there's a spiritual component that has to happen in order for us to truly free ourselves from the stuff that makes life not so fun. Hatred, murder, killing, and all these things, uh, jealousy, everything that makes the world an unpleasant place. So we're going to take a look at how we can take that next step in part two. We said that we want to create heaven on earth, and we know what earth is. We can all pretty much agree on that. But what actually is heaven? That's what we're going to look at in this section. And we're going to begin with why did people try to create utopias in the first place? Maybe not some of the more negative ones, but there are some that seem to really come from legitimate longings. And we all sort of have this longing to to rid ourselves of problems, right? That's that's pretty universal, and we're going to hear another thought on it here. And and this is one of the motivations, I think, for utopian societies, or for, or for people even dreaming about heaven or longing for heaven, right? And we look for some solution, um, sometimes in the sense of, if only I could get to a place where these things in, don't bother me, then I'd be okay. Or if I could just be with these types of people, um, then I'd be happy. Um, so that, that's what I need. I need to find these types of people. So even if you're not imagining having a perfect society, we all do have these longings. My life could be good if. And Swedenborg actually got a very interesting view into the nature of this phenomena, you know, because everyone's, whether they're conscious of it or not, kind of mapping out in their mind what heaven would be. And Swedenborg actually got to see people on the other side learn the nature of the real heaven versus the picture that they had had of it. And he describes it in Conjugal Love 2. Here's how the story begins. I once saw an angel flying beneath the eastern sky, holding a trumpet to his mouth, who sounded towards the north, towards the west, and towards the south. 
He was wearing a cape which swept backwards as he flew, and he was girded with a sash of garnets and sapphires that seemed ablaze with fire and light. Flying in horizontal position, facing forward and down, he slowly descended to the tract of ground surrounding me. Landing upright on his feet, he began to pace back and forth, and then seeing me, he headed in my direction. I was in the spirit, and in this state was standing on a hill in the southern zone. A conversation ensues between Swedenborg and the angel, which is described here, conjugal love two, or married love two, conjugal is the, uh, or, yeah, there, there's a couple different names for it. This is sort of the, the unique Latin word Swedenborg used to describe the phenomenon. What is happening? I heard, this is Swedenborg talking, what is happening? I heard the sound of your trumpet and saw you descending through the air, which is what I would probably say if I, if I saw an angel that had those qualities. It's a good start. The angel answered, I've been sent to call together people most renowned for their learning, most discerning in their brilliance and foremost in their reputation for wisdom, who have come from the kingdoms of the Christian world and are living in this surrounding land. I have been sent to assemble them on this hill where you are standing to express their honest opinions as to what they had thought, understood, and perceived in the world regarding heavenly joy and eternal happiness. The reason for my mission is that some newcomers from the world admitted into our heavenly society in the East have told us that not even one person in the whole Christian world knows what heavenly joy and eternal happiness are. Thus, what heaven is. My brothers and companions were very surprised at this, and they said to me, Go down, call together, and assemble the wisest in the world of spirits, the world into which all mortals are first gathered when they, after they leave the natural world, in order that we may learn from the testimony of many whether it is true that Christians are in such darkness and unenlightened ignorance concerning the life to come. He also added, Wait here a little, and you will see companies of the wise streaming here. The Lord is going to prepare a hall of assembly. For them, so ignorance in the world. Swedenborg's time, so this is mid seventeen fifties. I mean, mid seventeen hundreds. Is there still that kind of ignorance today? We'll see based on what these guys' concepts of heaven was. So after that conversation, this happened. I waited, and behold, after half an hour, I saw two bands of people coming from the north, two from the west, and two from the south. As they arrived, they were led by the angel with the trumpet into the hall prepared for them, where they took places assigned to them according to the zones they came from. They formed six groups or companies. A seventh came from the east, but it was not visible to the others owing to the light. The story progresses, and we eventually get to these groups. There's like six groups of people who are divided by their idea of heaven. Let's take a look and what these groups thought. And see, do you see yourself in here? Do you think any part of this would be heaven? So the first group thought that heaven is just getting there, just being allowed in. It doesn't, what do you mean? You're, you get in and it's awesome. We love it. The second group thought heaven was constantly getting to hang out and talk with angels. The third group thought that heaven was an endless feast. It was all entertainment and food. The fourth group thought that heaven was living in a paradise. Fifth group thought heaven was having tons of wealth and power. And the sixth group thought that heaven was eternal worship or worship services. So, does any of that sound like heaven? Uh, there's certainly been groups of people, even today, that will tell you heaven is one of those things. So, that's the idea they have. How does it stack up against the actual heaven? And what happens with these people? Well, you, you'd think that if the idea was wrong, you know, heaven 
would whoever's in charge of telling people stuff would say, "Well, you're wrong. It's actually this. You you got to get your facts straight." Actually, instead, all these groups were allowed to go live their idea of heaven, so they could see for themselves. Is it heaven or is it not? And to help tell this story, we have Dr. Jonathan Rose, who translated it, uh, and he's going to describe a bit of what these groups ran into. One group had the view of sort of a social heaven. What I think of is that when people are doing their workaday lives and all that, the funnest thing in their lives is when they get to go hang out afterwards and talk and tell jokes and learn news and gossip and all that sort of stuff. Their picture of heaven was a social one, that they would be having these delightful conversations with angels, laughing, telling stories, learning news. So they were taken to this huge building. I picture this one of these 18th century mansions that had over 50 rooms in it. And different conversations were going on in different rooms. You know, in one room, they're sort of telling jokes about lovers and things like this. In another room, they're talking about the latest political intrigue and what's the news from the court and all that. And so people were allowed to go into any room and just join whatever conversation they want. You can participate. You can just listen to what's going on. The people were put into this situation, but in fact, uh, they were told that the only doors into the building go in, you cannot exit. There are no exits to the building. So at first it was delightful to them to have these conversations and they're going from one room to another and they're laughing and enjoying it and everything. After just a few days, it was extremely tedious. They couldn't stand, they couldn't, they got as far away as they could in the building from being able to hear even the buzz of the conversation at a distance and it was still very distressing to them and they started having chest pains. They were very distressed because they were told they can't ever leave. All the joy went out of it completely. Okay, and there's a little kid in that one. There's not actually any kids that went through this process. Uh, Kids are taken right into heaven. They wouldn't put them through something like that. There's, you know, child protection laws and all that. But that's just a collage to show you the emotions these people went through. So, they went through that. They learned, oh, this is not good. Eventually, angels came in, let them out after they'd really got to live it out, and then taught them a little something about what's the actual meaning of heaven. This is conjugal love five. It is the pleasure of doing something that is of use to oneself and to others, and the pleasure in being useful takes its essence from love and its expression from wisdom. So he's saying it, meaning heaven, is the pleasure of doing something that is of use to oneself and to others. The pleasure in being useful, springing from love through wisdom, is the life and soul of all heavenly joys. Angels in heaven enjoy delightful associations which stimulate their minds, gladden their spirits, gratify their hearts, and recreate their bodies, but they enjoy these associations after they have performed useful services in their occupations and employments. The life and soul and all their delights and pleasures comes from the useful service they perform. If you take away that life or soul, however, the subsidiary joys gradually become no longer joys, but first matters of indifference, then stupid, and finally dreary and distressing. They, talking to people, having social interaction, that's a part of heaven. You can, you can be in a heaven state there. The problem is, if that's all you're doing, if you don't have this component of you're doing something with your life as well, you, get to, you start to wear that whole thing out. So let's, there's one group, that's what they got. Let's see how the second group fared. Maybe they got it right. Back to Jonathan. There was another group 
that had the thought that it would be dining with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They, they, because of scriptures that give you that impression that you'll be dining with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they, they literally thought they were just going to be having dinner every day with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So they were taken somewhere where they were told that they would be having dinner with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the 12 apostles and all of their 15, you know, the 15 wives. Well, in the case of Jacob, there were actually two wives, um, 16 wives. So they had tables set up where each set of people, the idea was that you'd eat with one patriarch one day and then the next day with the next one, then the next day with the next one. Then you'd rotate around to the first one again. Now, after only a few days, these people were so sick of eating just another course, another, oh, they couldn't stand the sight of food anymore. And when they tried to ask to leave, they were told, uh, well, wait, you haven't dined with Peter or Paul yet. It'll be a great offense. You know, it'll be a, a disgrace if you, if you leave. <laughs> Short story, they just begged to be able to leave and eventually they were they were allowed to leave and, and go on to something different. But it just was not a sustainable situation. And the whole thing is not just to mess with people and to give them a miserable experience. Nothing harmful is permitted unless good comes out of it. If you really have a notion of heaven, of what you think is going to be the best thing ever, that is deeply ingrained inside of you. It can't just come out by someone telling you, no, that's not right. You've got to be able to see it through to understand, okay, this is not what I want. This is actually to free those people from it. So after they had been reduced to that state, again, angels came, released them, and taught them a little more about, taught this group what what true heaven and true heavenly joy is. This is from Conjugal Love 6. Latent in the affection of every angel's will is a certain inner tendency which draws the mind to accomplish something. By accomplishment, the mind finds peace and satisfaction. This satisfaction and peace produce a state of mind receptive of a love of useful service from the Lord. From the reception of this love comes heavenly happiness, which is the life and the joys just referred to. Heavenly food in its essence is nothing else than love, wisdom, and useful service combined. That is, useful service accomplished through wisdom out of love. Consequently, in heaven, everyone is given food for the body in accordance with the useful service he performs. Magnificent food in the case of those engaged in outstanding service, modest food but of excellent flavor and taste in the case of those in an intermediate degree of useful service, and humble food in the case of those in humble service, while the lazy receive none. Okay, wait, wait, calm down, everybody. Is this some kind of totalitarian, you don't get any food? There's a reason. It's all... It's all doled out by correspondences. We're not going to get into it now. The point is you don't need food to live there. It's more of a reward. Uh, it's, it's something that as you progress in becoming more and more into a state of heaven, the food can get better and better. So we'll, we'll touch on that another time. All right, so those two groups both got a similar lesson about how you can have this stuff, you can have food, you can have conversation, but unless useful service, and that is a Swedenborgian sort of term that means helping doing something meaningful, contributing to the welfare of your fellow human beings, of, of the rest of the world, that's heaven. So let's see, there's a third group, are, are they going to learn that same lesson or do they already know it? Let's take a look. 
This next group, because of, again, because of scriptures, because of taking scripture literally, this seems to be the problem that a lot of these people have, is taking scripture overly literally. Uh, they were told that they would sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel or something. So uh, they, they thought that it would be having power, having magnificence and you know, regal majesty and so on. So they were taken somewhere and told that they were about to come into their kingdom and they would be waited on hand and foot. Each of them was given a scepter and a mantle uh, and a crown uh, to put on. So they had all the finery there and they got all dressed up and you know, were ready for the glory of what was going to transpire. For some reason, no one put them into high office. In this case, all they did was just sort of ice them. Uh, they just left them in this room waiting indefinitely for the idea that at any moment they were going to take on their power. It was just going to be so excellent. Finally, uh, these angels were looking down at them and just said, what are you doing sitting there? You know, they, it wore them out just even waiting for this to, to happen. It's interesting that with this particular group, the group who thought heaven is domination or heaven is ruling over people, that I will find my deepest joy in being the ruler of people, they didn't even really get to experience their joy. They just kind of, as he said, got frozen out, got shown the ridiculousness, and it shows that more in the text, like, got shown, it's, just, it's ridiculous to think that that's heaven. And I wonder if it's because that, that, that desire might be more toxic, and you don't actually want to give people a taste of that because it could have consequences. Anyway, these people too were taught, conjugal of seven, we read the words, and this is this is description, because Jonathan was saying people get this notion from Scripture sometimes. Swedenborg is saying this is what that means in Scripture. The words kings and princes and by reigning with Christ mean to be wise and perform useful services. Are you seeing a theme here? Useful services. To those who faithfully perform useful services, the divine gives a love of being useful and its reward. The reward is internal blessedness, and this blessedness is eternal happiness. Positions of great power and possessions of great riches exist in heaven as well as on earth. Yet the people in the highest positions are chosen from those whose heart is in the public welfare. And that's heavenly, a heavenly love for power. You can love power and ruling if you think, if I was in that position, I know because you're thinking about the good you could do on a large scale. You don't have to be evil to run for political office. It just lends itself to that. But there is a good love of power as well. All right. We got two more, we got three more, or something like that. Let's see if any of them can, can swing and hit. All right, here's the next group. There are scriptures that uh, describe heaven as a paradise. There's the Garden of Eden, and similar images come up at the end of the book of Revelation. So there was a whole group of people who believed that heaven was going to be just being in this heavenly paradise eating the fruits off the trees, enjoying one another's company, and so on. So they were taken to a place, a beautiful, beautiful place, very nice paradise, park, garden, and they were, people were drinking fruit juices, people weaving flowers together into garlands, and there, you know, there, there were people holding hands and dancing in the park, and it's a lovely scene, you know, it's like, Central Park on a sunny spring afternoon or something, but uh, but it wore out quickly for people. They 
they got to the point where they just couldn't stand it. They were found holding their heads and rocking back and forth in a state of despair. They just felt crushed and such sorrow because uh, the whole thing wore out for them pretty quickly. They couldn't stand, they don't want to taste another piece of fruit. They, they get bored to death just looking at the trees and people just lying around and not doing anything. It, it, uh, the, the whole pleasure of it wore out for them. After a while, this just became so annoying and tedious to them. They couldn't stand the sight of the fruit. They didn't want to hear people singing songs or any of it anymore. And so they started wandering through the garden and it, you know, one area leads to another, this paradise, they, they go through this area and then that area, uh, but they can't find their way out. And they bump into some people and they ask for directions and the people actually say, well, there's no way out. It's an endless labyrinth. And the farther, the more you try to leave, the farther in you go into the center of it. Right now, you are in the center of it and the, at the heart of its delights, which was just crushing to them. So they just sat down on the grass and started rocking back and forth with their heads in their hands in despair. Oh, but don't worry. It was a happy ending. The angels came, right? They said, D do you see now? We had to show that. This is like a shattering experience. We've talked about how people, as according to Swedenborg, people in the afterlife go through shattering experiences, meaning you have illusions about what life is. You have to see for yourself this is not what life is. And it often comes with a little bit of breaking down, sort of a hitting bottom there. So that's what these people were going through. But once they'd learned what their lesson, then they too were taught. This is conjugal love number eight. Heavenly joy, and all these passages we're reading relates to the particular fantasies that these people had. Heavenly joy and so eternal happiness are not the outward delights of a paradise, the garden that they were in, unless they include at the same time the inward delights of a paradise. Delight of the soul comes from love and wisdom from the Lord, and because love is creating of effects and effects through wisdom, therefore the abode of both love and wisdom is in the effect, and the effect is useful service. Swedenborg describes all kinds of beauty in heaven, all kinds of amazing landscapes, gardens, parks, that stuff is there, and it's there to a scale that we can't even imagine. However, he says, when angels even look at it, they're not really getting excited about the actual things that are in it or the shapes. They're excited about the meaning, what those things stand for, the deeper realities. And when you're living a life of love for your neighbor, then you, you understand sort of the essence of this stuff, and it comes alive in a way that makes it so that rather than becoming eventually boring and tedious like this this garden did to those people, it becomes more and more meaningful as you understand it more and more deeply. All right, two to go. Let's take a look at our next group and what they ran into. Based on Scripture, people had come to feel that it was going to be endless worship, that heaven is endless worship and that it would be glorification of God. You see images like this in the book of Revelation. They took these images literally and thought that it was gonna be bowing down before God and singing hymns without end. So they were taken to a place where they had this experience. They were taken into a church. Everybody was shut in there. And there was a preacher who was holding forth hour after hour after hour. Someone came to check up on them just one day later, just on the second day. 
and looked at the way that they were glorifying God. They were instructed as well to keep their minds exclusively on things that were holy and religious. After just one day, these people looked like they were out of their minds. Their eyes were rolled back in their heads. They, it was, a lot of them were asleep. Uh, finally, some group stood up and started shouting at the preacher to, to stop. They were just sick of the sound of the voice, and they couldn't bear it anymore. The, the good thing is, if you guys are shouting at your screen in that same way right now, like, stop! I can't hear you, man. It's the web. I can't hear you. I wonder, yeah, how, how long of Swedenborgian life would it take for someone to realize it was a false heaven? So, uh, you know, wasn't it going to be that one? Eternal worship, eternal uh, connection with God, you know, praising God, thinking of devout things. Why, why didn't that work? So these people, again, were finally freed of that preaching and were taught by an angel. Conjugal love nine. Glorifying God means to bring forth the fruits of love, that is, to perform the work of one's occupation faithfully, honestly, and diligently. For this is the effect of love of God and love of the neighbor, and it is what binds society together and makes its goodness. That's the glorifying of God. It's not necessarily talking about God, thinking about God, doing what, what love would want to do, what, that's what God is, that's glorifying God. So things that say heaven is continual glorification of God, it means it's a continual living out of love. We're to our last group here. This is the group, if you don't remember all of them from before, this is the group that thought getting into heaven is is just all you need to be happy. You just, once you get in there, you're in heaven, that's all heaven is. It's just about getting admitted in. And that seems like it's the simplest idea, so it would have the most benign story, but actually it has one of the most intense, actually the most intense story of any of them. So let's hear what happened with our final group. There was one group that had what is arguably the most basic idea, which is that it's just a matter of being let in the door. A common thought back in Swedenborg's day because of the the way things were was that it was just like going to a wedding reception. It's just fun, there's great food. It all you just have to be led in the door. Just to have an invitation is all you need. To find out whether that's the case, they were taken to meet a group of nine distinguished theologians who had the same idea. And they were all allowed to go up to heaven and see. The fact is, if you're not prepared for heaven, it's actually kind of an agony. You can't breathe there. Some people have chest pains. Some people writhe like they're in an epileptic seizure. Uh, some people are stripped naked and thrown out. Um, they reported on all the experiences that they've had of being led into heaven. It doesn't mean they couldn't get back there someday, but you have to have heaven within you, firmly within you, to be able to stand the experience of being in heaven. So people needed to be disabused of the notion that it's just anybody can just walk in the door and it'll just be awesome. And that might seem a little rough. Why would you, it be so negative to try to go into heaven uh, if you weren't ready for it? But if you think of that in the reverse, if, if heaven was just a matter of getting let into heaven, if you could just be pulled into heaven and then you'd be just fine there, God would have a responsibility to pull us all into heaven right now, right? Because if we could just go and be happy, then that's what should, we should not be wasting our time watching internet shows. We should be going to heaven, right? But 
This life, as we said before, you have your spirit and you have your external self. You got to get those in harmony. Here is where we have the power to change. Because if you, unless you are loving the common good above all, that's not the mindset of heaven. You can't breathe that air. But we all are being brought in our lives slowly through all these weird experiences we have that we call life to a point where we can love our neighbor and where we do love heaven. And that training happens in this world. You die and go to the spiritual world, according to Swedenborg. There's another sort of sorting out process in the world of spirits. Then you have the chance to go to heaven. But before, it's it's like, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's like here. If you don't have the pressure uh, right, if you don't have your nitrogen right, you can, if you're going up from scuba diving, you get the bends. It's terrible. Same thing if we're trying to rise quickly spiritually. Right? So these people were also talked to by an angel, and this is conjugal of 10, for our final bit of wisdom. Heaven is a matter of the state of a person's life. The state of heavenly life comes from a combination of love and wisdom in useful service. Everyone who becomes an angel carries his own heaven within him because he carries the love that belongs to his heaven. For every person from creation is a little effigy, image and replica of the larger heaven. Therefore, everyone comes into a society of heaven of which he is a form of an individual effigy. Consequently, when he comes into that society, he enters into a form corresponding to himself, thus passing as if out out of himself into that larger self, and entering as if from that larger self into the same self within him, so that he draws its life as his own, and his own life as belonging to it. When you have formed yourself into an image of heaven, you get there, you're the same thing. You fit in because what you are in microcosm, the larger heaven is in macrocosm. So that is the place we're all headed, but there are steps in between. And you're not going to become an image of that of heaven thinking that heaven is any of those things that those group of people thought because none of those have love for other people at their core they actually have something else there and it's part of the reason why they could never really get satisfied by those fantasies and we're going to hear a little more about why here in in reading over swedenborg's account of what he saw in the spiritual world when these different groups of, of people get together and they talk about what their idea of heaven is. Um, it's interesting that most of them are forms of hedonism. And hedonism is the idea that the good is the pleasurable. And the pleasurable is the good. And you can see, I mean, that that's a kind of natural tendency that we have, right? If, if I think something is fun or makes me happy, then it's, it's probably good. Um, and, and it's partly, you know, I, I, I like myself. And so I think, well, if I'm enjoying this, then it's probably okay. <laughs> it's just a natural tendency. And so, and so some of those, some of those people, their idea of heaven is a kind of sensual hedonism. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, very sensory oriented and another kind I see is a kind of social hedonism actually but what it's fascinating to me that what the the newcomers experience what these people when they're allowed to try it and they so they try it and they find out that it's what's known as the hedonic treadmill or in in philosophical and psychological literature that just like a treadmill doesn't really you're not really getting anywhere you're not really going to a different place a different state um, 
the same is true with hedonism, that if, if you just have these pleasures, then you're not really satisfied. So let's get off the, the hedonic treadmill and start actually making forward progress. If you want to read that whole story uh, for yourself, check it out in True Christianity Volume 2. That What we read here was from Conjugal Love, but this is, has an updated translation. I said before, Jonathan Rose, who we saw interviewed, was a translator. He actually he translated this one. He didn't translate the version we read there. So you can download this one for free. On uh, Swedenborg sometimes tells the same story in multiple works as he did there with True Christianity. Okay, so we looked at the past, and going back in our sections, we looked at the past uh, attempts to create perfect societies. We now have defined our terms, we know what heaven is, and what we're looking for. Now let's look at, once we, once we have our target in our sights, how do we get that heaven onto earth? So, part three. So can we make heaven on earth based on the track record? How hard it was, even those people in that story, they all thought they had heaven, but it turns out they had a lot to learn. Can we, mere mortals here on this earth, have a, have a hope of doing that? Yeah, we can do it, but it's just got to happen from the inside out rather than the outside in, as people have tried. Actually, according to Swedenborg, the church, which we'll explain, is heaven on earth. And this is Apocalypse Explained 404. The church is a heaven of the Lord's on earth, and through the church's connection to heaven, it and heaven act in unity. I want to say that the church is a term in Swedenborg that means this, the part inside of each of us that can connect with God, the, the good part of us. Therefore, when the word mentions heaven and earth, it means the inner church and the outer church. This is because what lies within the people of the church so every, he says the people of the church, because everyone who has love and wisdom in them, to, even though they have different religions, they are all considered part of this spiritual church, according to Swedenborg, even if you don't know you're in it. This is because what lies within the people of the church is heaven, is the heaven among them. And because heaven and earth means the inner church and the outer church, heaven and earth also means the inner self and the outer self within each of us, or our spiritual self and our earthly self. We are a church in least form if we do what is good, either in obedience to faith or because we actually love to do it. Therefore, the church was a general, and as a general, general entity arises from individuals who have a church within them. This makes it clear why heaven means our inner or spiritual self. I say our spiritual self and mean our spiritual mind, which is the mind that lies higher or farther inward within each of us. Our earthly self means our lower or outer mind. So we can be if we're trying to bring heaven to earth, there's a new meaning in those words because the outer part of us is the lower, more dysfunctional part of us is the earth, and the higher, more truth and love connected part of us is heaven. So we can actually become a miniature heaven walking around on this planet. Heaven and Hell 57, he talks about that. We can say the same of the church as we have of heaven. Since the church is the Lord's heaven on earth, it has also has many components, and yet each is called the church and is a church to the extent that the qualities of love and faith rule within it. In it, the Lord forms a single whole out of the varied elements and therefore makes a single church out of many churches. Much the same can be said of the individual member of the church as has been said about the church in general, namely that the church is within and not outside. 
that anyone is a church in whom the Lord is present in the qualities of love and faith. Much the same can be said of the individual who has the church within, as has been said about the angel who has heaven within, that such an individual is the church in least form, as the angel is heaven in least form. So we could be doing even what angels do, which is is living and exuding God's love and wisdom. And how do we do that? Well, a lot of it is actually about balancing love and wisdom in ourselves. In Secrets of Heaven in two places, Swedenborg describes it. He says, every individual in the church has heaven inside if she or he is governed by truth and at the same time by goodness from the Lord. So you know truth and specifically higher sort of truths, um, and at the same time, love is what's pushing you forward and what's bringing that truth to life. Truth and goodness in us form a kind of city. As a result, we ourselves are called the city of God if we have the church inside us. So we can be the city of God. You know the, the, the New Jerusalem described in the book of Revelation, pictured here. Actually, that is a picture of the heaven, the heavenly mindset that can appear in each of us. And actually even down to the dimensions of it, how it, I don't know if you've read the description of it, it's the same length as width, as height, which is confusing because you have a city that's thousands of miles high, but he says that that is described like that because it's describing the balance in us. So he talks about it in New Jerusalem and its heavenly doctrines, a little pamphlet he wrote, uh, number one, and we have a little clip for you about it here. The city was laid out as a square. Its length was as great as its breadth. And the angel who talked with me measured the city with a reed, 12,000 stadia. Its length, breadth, and height were equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, which is the measure of a human being, that is, of an angel. When people read this, they understand it only in literal terms. They think that the visible heavens are going to be destroyed along with the earth and that new heavens are going to come into being and come down onto the new earth in the form of a holy city, a Jerusalem with the dimensions given in the description. Angels understand it in a completely different way though. They understand in a spiritual way the details that we understand in an earthly way and they understand what those details really mean. This is the inner or spiritual meaning of the word. In the deeper or spiritual meaning that the angels are engaged in, a new heaven and a new earth means a new church, both in heaven and on earth. The holy city coming down from God out of heaven means its heavenly teachings. Its length, breadth, and height, which were equal, means everything in those teachings that is good and true, all gathered together. The gold, like clear glass, that the city and the streets were made of, means good actions done out of love, which caused the teachings and their truths to shine. The nations of those who are saved, and the monarchs of the earth who will bring their glory and honor into it, mean everyone in the church who is devoted to what is good and true. This is what the spiritual meaning of the word is like. The earthly or literal meaning serves as its foundation. All the same, these two meanings, the spiritual and the earthly, are bound together by their correspondence. Heaven is actually also 
a unity from variety. Secrets of Heaven 690, he describes it, uh, and it's a principle that's important to know because it shows how we can all come together to make heaven. Another fact to be aware of is that no community can ever be completely and absolutely the same as another. And within a community, no individual can ever be exactly like another. To everything, there is a concordant and harmonious variety. The Lord brings this variety into order in such a way that everything bends toward a common goal. This He accomplishes by means of our love for Him and faith in Him, and the result is unity. Accordingly, heaven and its joy are never completely and exactly the same for one person as for another. Just as love and faith come in great variety, so do the heaven and heavenly joy that love and faith contain. So heaven is never the same for any two people. So it would stand to reason that heaven on earth is not the same for any two people. So I'd like to break the fourth wall here and say, you guys in the chat room, what is what brings heaven on earth in your life? Because we're here telling you what makes heaven on earth. Maybe we don't know what it is for you. So I wanted you to like write it out, and then we'll take some and, and show them a little later in the show so other people can get, uh, can get ideas of what it might be heaven on earth for people, because maybe you know something we don't, you know? All right, so another note worth having is heaven on earth is possible because there used to be heaven on earth, according to Swedenborg. We're going to start by looking at, this is a clip actually that had been in our show about the meaning of the Cain and Abel story, but it talks about what makes sort of the, the essence of a true church or a true heaven on earth. So here's that clip. Take this proposition, for instance. Love for the Lord and charity for our neighbor are the essential ingredients of all theology and worship. If we took this as a premise, our minds would then be enlightened by vast numbers of passages in the Word that otherwise lie hidden in the murk of false assumptions. In fact, heresy would then vanish. All the churches would join into one, no matter how great the differences in doctrinal teachings derived from this premise or pointing to it, and no matter how great the differences in ritual. If this were how matters now stood, we would all be ruled by the Lord as a single person. We would be like members and organs of a single body, which, although they differ in form and function, are still connected to a single heart on which they all depend, each in its own form, each different from the next. Then, no matter what our theology or our outward form of worship, we would each say, You are my kin. I see that you worship the Lord and that you are a good person. And actually, in that number, when we had made that video, there was a part of it that we cut out because it wasn't relevant to that episode, but we're going to show that part to you right now. So this is further, this is Secrets of Heaven 2385, it's Aura Cana it's the same thing, just different translations. That is what the ancient church was like. It stretched through many doctrines and different rituals, but were still a single church, because charity was a vital element to them. In those days, the Lord's kingdom was on earth as it is in the heavens, because that is what heaven is like. So you had it. It was when there's people, it doesn't mean that everybody was worshiping the same or acting the same, but you had all these different groups of people who had love as their primary goal. So that doesn't seem that unreachable. If we could get, even a, it wasn't like the, the church he's describing there was across the whole earth, if we could get a large enough critical mass of people 
saying, we have love as the goal, and we live by it. We could make heaven on earth. And let's get into some details of how we could do that in part four. So, external, external compulsion to make heaven, come on, everybody behave well, doesn't necessarily work. We learned that in the first section, we've learned that the hard way as a human race, but if you can't do that, how do you change society? Well, here's a thought for you. You know, one, one way to think about trying to solve our problems and try to achieve a heavenly state is by encouraging people to work on what's on the inside. So the way they think, um, what they feel, the way they feel, their attitudes, their desires, what they take delight in, what they think is, is happy and good, and um, the habits of their lives and things like that. And, you know, try and, try and internalize what's right. Um, and try to be motivated from within. The, the locus of motivation is from within. So how do you get that locus to move inward? Uh, one way is to tap into the heavenly marriage. Six Secrets of Heaven 2803. This shows what the union of divinity and humanity in the Lord is like. It is a mutual interchange, or in other words, reciprocal. This union is what is called the divine marriage, and from it descends the heavenly marriage. The heavenly marriage is the Lord's own kingdom in the heavens. So if we can get that uniting of us with the divine, then you have this heaven on earth. And the way that we do it essentially is, is through mindsets, you know, through ways of looking at the world. There's two ways that we can be operating from. One is hell and one is heaven. And the, we, we go through these states all the time, as I think you'll recognize. First, you can be in very heavenly, beautiful surroundings, but still have a miserable, hellish internal experience. And you don't got to just take my word for it. Here's somebody else to back me up. I remember going down to uh, Florida for a spring break. And we got down there, four-star hotel, gave us a room overlooking uh, the um, water. But it wasn't the ocean, it was the bay. And there were some people who got in just before us, and they got overlooking the ocean. Now, you can understand why I wasn't having a good time. So I just had observed myself at that point that the surroundings are beautiful, how can I turn that into something negative? Oh, I want to be happier or I compare myself to another. So I know that state, and that occurs a lot, and I, you know, do the best I can to ask God to relieve me of that. Because in that state, in a state of hell, doesn't matter how good things are around you, if anybody else has something better, you're not happy. So that's obviously not going to work. But on the other hand, having the, uh, this heavenly state of mind can change. You could take a normal situation, like just being at home with your family, and it could go from relatively uh, unremarkable or prosaic to this This is heaven, and you can see how that journey plays out here. It's like uh, someone who's been an alcoholic bumps into someone who finally got sober. What's your life like? Well, I go home, and I spend some time with my wife. I watch a little TV and go to bed. Oh, man, you call that happiness? That's nothing, because they don't experience... That sobriety is not nothing. It's freedom 
from the bondage of trying to satisfy the natural, divine the possibility of satisfy the natural, the ego. And I remember a friend of mine in recovery said one of his best days, he said, I can't believe it, I was home on a Saturday night painting my bathroom and looked out and my wife and my kid were watching TV. And you know, you would say, well, that's, that's happiness? That's what you get from going to a recovery group? He says, yeah, but prior to that, I was out drinking, shooting up dope, not ever seeing my kid, not being home doing what I said I would do. So he can recognize that that, that kind of happiness, which someone who's still out there doing that would say, I'm not gonna waste my time with that. That's the power of the heavenly mind. Take something normal and make it, this is amazing. And I love to do things that some people might consider a chore. You know, I, I love this. That can lead to heaven. So we, we know that you can feel better about things, but don't we want heaven on earth? Like, heaven on earth, like everything is a lot better now, and you could, if you transported it into the future where you had heaven on earth, you'd say, this is so amazing, this is so much better, not just people who are subtly happy on their own. Yes, there can be that. Like, if you've ever read Howard Storm, he had this the near-death experience, My Descent into Darkness. He talked about a future for the human race that he said would come about in a couple hundred years that was just unrecognizable from now. We were like able to grow food in new ways. Everyone was happy. There was all this amazing stuff. And Swedenborg does say that we can and are headed towards something. He doesn't give details like that, but something wildly better than we've known. We talked about it in our episode, The Spiritual Future of the Human Race, for a little description of that. You can check that one out. However, that can only come about from the inside out. If we all made did the steps to get this heaven inside of us and have that affect the earth in us, the outer part of us, so that we were acting into the world with that, that would bring about this heaven. So we just got to get a couple of steps right, and and this this is this is how heaven comes in because Swedenborg's theology or his spirituality, his worldview, he was having all of these experiences of spirits and gets to go talk in heaven and see people not like their ideas of heaven, but his advice on how we live is all very much practical in our daily life stuff. This is how you do the spirituality. You do it in your daily life. Heaven and Hell 535, he says, let it be known that the life that leads to heaven is not one of withdrawal from the world, but a life in the world. And then a life of piety apart from a life of thoughtfulness, which is possible only in the world, does not lead to heaven at all. Rather, it is a life of thoughtfulness, a life of behaving honestly and fairly in every duty, every affair, every task, from our deeper nature and therefore from a heavenly source. It's like the guy in the story that, that Peter Rhodes was just talking about. He's just painting his his room, but he knows... I. I'm doing this, and I know the good me being here does for my wife and my kid and for my household, so I'm doing this now from a heavenly mindset. The more we can approach our work, our relationships, you know, our school in that way, that, that this can actually be a spiritual thing if we do it justly, honestly, sincerely, and with a love for the human race behind it in whatever way that manifests, we start to bring heaven. Another thing to realize is that's good work to do no matter what, because we bring our character into the afterlife with us. This is again from Heaven and Hell 535. Our abiding character after death is determined by the quality of our life and thoughtfulness in the world. Heavenly bliss flows from the Lord into a life of thoughtfulness. No one is let into heaven simply by thinking, but by intending and doing together with thinking. Unless doing what is good is united 
to intending what is good and thinking what is good, there is no salvation and no union of our inner person with our outer. And that's how you get into heaven is also how you make heaven on earth. You can't just know things, you have to be practicing, living day to day. I know what heaven would be like, how can I bring a little bit of heaven to these situations? Now, heaven here is relatively subtle. I mean, you can have a state of mind where you're, in, you're you, I would have gotten mad, but I didn't, or this would have been boring, but now it's fun, or I feel this compassion, pretty intense, but overall, it's, it's not like you'd picture when you hear the word heaven, right? Not, not in the same way. It's more a refined sense. However, there is this, if we work to create that heaven in us, there is this dramatic expansion of happiness and meaning on the other side. I just want to say that so you don't think heaven is all subtlety and doing what we're already doing. This is Heaven and Hell 5.30. He says, spiritual people believe in the divine being and act honestly and fairly, not just because it follows civil and moral laws, but also because it follows divine laws. In fact, since they are thinking about divine laws when they act, they are in touch with Heaven's angels, and to the extent that they are, they are united to them, and their inner person, which is essentially a spiritual person, is opened. When this is our nature, the Lord adopts and lead us with, leads us without our realizing it. And whatever things we do that are honest and fair, the deeds of our moral and civil life come from a spiritual source. Doing what is honest and fair from a spiritual source is doing it from genuine honesty and fairness, or doing it from the heart. So there you have the regular tasks, but you're doing them for this reason. And that's, that's all it is. It doesn't have to be that mystical. You're just doing them because you love what's honest and fair, then that can lead to this great expansion of joy that we feel in heaven. And when you get into the afterlife, Swedenborg says that stuff, we're in touch with heaven's angels through it here, we feel it faintly, but then it just becomes this amazing thing. We're going to hear, this is from Swedenborg's Heaven and Hell 412, where he's talking more about this subject. Honest people who do not know what heavenly joy is are first taken to parks that surpass every image of their imagination. Just when they think that this is a heavenly paradise, they are told that this is not real heavenly happiness. So they are allowed to recognize deeper states of joy as these are perceptible to their deepest natures. And then they are transported into a state of peace that reaches their very inmost nature. They confess that no part of this can be expressed or even comprehended. Then they are taken into a state of innocence, again all the way to their own deepest feeling. In this way, they are enabled to realize what real spiritual and heavenly goodness are. So there is everything in heaven that you would imagine, these amazing vistas, these bliss, blissful states, this deep moving stuff, but it's all held together by the things we cultivate in this world, such as honesty, fairness. So that's how we make the heaven on earth. But that's enough of me telling you how to make heaven on earth. Let's see the responses. Did we get anybody? Uh, what did you guys say? All right, great. Here we go. Meditation is my slice of heaven every day. That's from Marvin. Awesome. Adam, when everyone puts everyone else first instead of themselves, so love for other people. Uh, that's, that is it. That's the essence of it. Zoe, peace brings heaven on earth to me, and peace is an essential of heaven. Next, story, story, love and hugs and children, all excellent stuff. 
Oliver, acceptance and inclusion sound like a good place to start. Something would be missing if we didn't have those. Suzanne Grandma, music makes heaven on earth for me, and I'm sure she's not alone in that. Iris, to see the earth and mankind getting into harmony once again. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, John, heaven on earth for me is seeing my wife at the end of the day. She's a lucky lady. Uh, to love and be loved by Judy. Absolutely. Kindness made manifest. Oh, hey, that's a great definition there. And this is Kurosaki. What brings heaven to my life is thinking of your episode of a day in the life of an angel and thinking of Jesus' return or naming me, finding my true place, etc. Well, we made it into somebody's heaven, or, or the teachings in it did. Awesome. Lee, everything for me is heaven, knowing that all things work for the good of everyone. And there, that's the power of the heaven mindset, turn everything heavenly. Cynthia, seeing and being with my sister always makes me super happy. She sounds awesome. Scott, when I am aware of love's presence, I am aware of heaven. So we share things in common. We all experience that differently. We identify what heaven is. And the more we can take those things and act on them, you know, some of those were when, when, love, when love's presence is there, how do we make ourselves that presence to other people? How do we get them aware of love's presence? Because then we have the idea, and we have the action, and then that creates heaven. In case you want some thoughts on how to help cultivate the heavenly mindset in you, we had a playlist called Spiritual Toolkit. Oh, look at that. That's animated. That's cool. Spiritual Toolkit, which were just some practical, here's how you kind of defeat the negative side, get to the positive side. It's worth noting that Emanuel Swedenborg, he was very much still involved in the world. So he was he was not just having these experiences, he was still even writing papers about things like the Swedish government, you know, science kind of things. He was still involved in that. So we take our spiritual tools we have, we apply them to regular situations. And it may seem like that's not a big deal, but if we all cultivated that heavenly mindset within us, what what would be the impact that that would have on the world? What would we see? So here's a final thought on that. If we just stopped and thought about it for a second that, well, what if, let's say on planet Earth, people did really enjoy their work? Let's say people have really meaningful work and let's say they don't cheat at their, whatever it is their work is. They do that work with a sense of justice, with a sense of compassion, kindness. They really care about the people that they're working with. They don't lie about whatever it is they're doing, they're, they're honest about it. Um, if, if a certain amount of courage is called for, then they have that courage to do what needs to be done. I mean, just imagine if people were like that most of the time. And I mean, you would start to feel a tremendous change in society in the world and a lot of our problems would go away think about all the injustice that would fade away right um, and we would we would experience more of heaven on earth all right let's do it you convinced me let's do it all right everyone do your part we can get this to go uh, if you want to do your part to help this video please like and subscribe you knew it was coming I do it at the end of every video. That helps. This, If this channel or these videos feel heavenly at all to you or like they're helping to bring that state of mind, 
doing this just makes it so they spread out on YouTube. Some people come across them, don't need them, that's fine. Some people get something good out of them, so that's why I ask. So I appreciate it. If you want to help make this program possible, consider making a donation. We're a nonprofit, so putting all this together runs on people who have the capacity giving. So that that's a way you can contribute to these messages spreading out there. And I said I would get your questions in, and we're going to do it on the other side of this very short video break. Okay, we're here. We're going to do the questions. Doesn't matter how long the show was, we're going to do the questions. All right, let's take a look at our first one here. Kendall, what does Swedenborg say about 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, where it says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye? Does he believe that this is a literal thing or a correspondence of something else? And if so, what? Ah, man. Well, the answer is yes. It is a correspondence. He says that, that all of the, the uh, Bible, the Old and New Testament, is written in correspondences. And I've heard what that one is. Unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know what that... I, I could guess, but I don't think... Sometimes things in Swedenborg, you can kind of piece together the, the puzzle and, oh yeah, this probably means this. However, I don't remember. Sometimes he comes the whole other direction. It's got a very specific correspondence. So I don't know. I don't know what that is, and I I don't even know if he addresses that. So I'm just going to flat out disappoint on that one. Maybe someone else in the chat can look it up. You guys are all at your computer. Uh, You you can search Swedenborg's books if you have them for for that, or go to, there's a site called New Christian Bible Study, which is actually a Swedenborg-inspired Bible search website. You can search Swedenborg's writings, you can search the Bible, newchristianbiblestudy.com, you can type in that thing, and you'll get right to it. So I'll just shovel you off to someone else. It's a great question, shows my limits there. Thanks. Okay, next one. Kurosaki, are falsities like a dark fog ruining true reflection by obstructing the light we would otherwise be receiving from the Lord? Yes, the answer is yes, and he actually even says that that fog and the blocking of light is a symbol of falsity, that in that spiritual light is truth and spiritual falsity is darkness. So in the other world, in the spiritual world, if you have falsity around you or don't understand something, you can actually, other people can see a dark cloud around you because it's that... It's that visceral, the, the things that are within you are projected around you. Swedenborg even reported seeing clouds around people when they didn't have the truth, and darker when they were really blocking out the light. So I say, absolutely, great comment. Uh, next one. Suzanne Grandma, so heaven is not a place, it is a state of being. If you are a loving, kind person, you are part of heaven. Then in that state, what do you do to be useful in this wonderful state? And you, there, there, the ways to be useful are infinite. What you're, we, we all do it all the, way, all the way anyway, or all the time anyway is what I'm trying to say, but we don't always realize it. It's, being useful is just helping anyone, and, but the more you're doing it for the right reasons, the more you're doing it in a heavenly way. Because you can go out and be very kind to people for self-serving reasons. That might still have a good impact on them, but it's not 
it's not genuine, it's not going to have as good an impact on you, and it probably won't get as good of a result. So you have to be thinking, how can I be as loving and wise in this situation as possible? So learn about the needs, what do people need, what's the situation, how, what's effective in helping, and then out of a genuine compassion for those people, go and do this stuff. Right, and it's it's going to waver. We're not always going to be to call that up, but that is the the heavenly usefulness. And the 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 more good it does for the more people, the higher the use is. So you're always looking to expand your capabilities. So those are my thoughts on it. It's a great question. Maybe other people have thoughts too. Okay, next one. Adam, do you think Swedenborg, when he had died, thought he was just having another spiritual experience and didn't know he actually passed on? That's a great question. I think he was aware, just because. As the story goes, he predicted the time of his death exactly. He had this this uh, a maid and a landlord, and the I think it was when he was getting old, he needed a maid. So he he told them. Uh, I, I think the story goes at one point somebody's like, "Well, can you do something on the 14th? And he said, "No, I'm I'm going to be dead by then." And according to to the maid and others. He went just just as he said. So I think he was aware. But then again, it would have, would have been an interesting story to, oh, this is a great conversation. I'm going to go back to Earth now. No, no, you're not doing that. So I think he, he did it according to what's been written. But great question. Next one. Terrence, what about the people born in China and, and practice Buddhism and never heard the name of Christ? Those people are, are in heaven just as much as anyone else as long as they're living from love and wisdom. According, according to what they believe. Swedenborg, this was something he's been saying, he said back in the 1750s, which, which not a lot of people were saying then, anybody who has any kind of good religion or good belief system, if they're living by that and they're doing it because they love what's honest, just, and fair, they're just as much on a track to heaven as anyone else, and that's, that they haven't if you have less falsities in your mind from your religion, you can actually do, be doing even better. Swedenborg said he Swedenborg was a Christian in the Christian world of his day, but he said so many heresies had crept into the Christian church that actually people coming from that realm had a harder time absorbing the truth because they had confirmed themselves against it. So everybody who's doing who's in China doing Buddhism and loving their neighbor is in great shape. Last one for tonight. Scott, if God is knowledge or reality and outside the realm of perception, and we are an extension of God's creation, which is as perfect as is God's creation, how or why do we believe that we are separate? And the separation is a funny thing. Um, well, I believe I'm separate because um, I can't. my car doesn't start. Okay, come on, God, start the car. It doesn't happen. We have these experiences of calling out for help, needing help, uh, and and I, I just don't feel very godlike a lot of the time. However, Swedenborg says that our life is from God, but he makes this distinction that we we're not the same thing as God, but we're receiving life from God. And there's an essential somehow there's an element of freedom where we can choose to work against God or with God. So there's there is a separateness there. You know, and obviously you can drift further and further from God and do things that are further, further from love. But then again, all all life is coming from God. It's all interconnected. So it's sort of both at the same time. And I wouldn't claim that I fully understand the phenomenon, but it's like Forrest Gump says, both. Both is happening. For your questions, if you want to tune in next week, if you could handle this week, tune in next week. We're going to be talking about the good things about hell. So if that's time.
that's our show for today. Thanks. We're getting into it next week. Hopefully, I will see you then. Thanks so much for letting me do this show. I hope you have a really good week, and hopefully something from this show was uh, was useful for you and will play a role in the coming week, and uh, see you Monday. <laughs>